0: You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. You are about to listen to part two of a conversation with the former Prime Minister of Greece, George Papandreou, Harvard Kennedy School Professor Ron Heifetz, and CEO and President of the International Leadership Association, Cynthia Cherry. If you have not listened to the first episode, you may want to go back and start there. It's a fascinating conversation. But you're about to enter a point where we start talking about democracy and then in the middle of this episode ron heifetz just does a wonderful job of summarizing some of what he's heard over these two episodes i hope you enjoy as always thank you so much for checking in and here we go you're going to drop in now
1: the current situation and the threats to democracy how do you think about the the regressions, uh, the autocratic regressions that we're seeing even in democratic systems? Some of them young systems yeah. like Hungary, some of them older old systems like the
2: United States. Yeah, a big issue, and I, I now as as, as um, I've taken on this responsibility in um, the Council of Europe as a, what is called the General Rapporteur for Democracy, I'm I'm expected to be able to analyze or work with people who have analyzed where democracy is going, will be going, and what kind of remedies or what kind of ways to support and strengthen democratic processes around the world, but particularly in Europe, since that's where I'm working. But I'll look, go back a little bit to the ancients, because I think what we need to do is start thinking again about what are the basics, some of the basic tenets. Not everybody will agree with me before I understand the basic tenets of democracy are, and see where we may have gone wrong, because you did mention Wrong. that democracy is not just elections. it's much more than that. So if we go back to the Iliad, the Iliad was actually seen as the first anti-war book. I mean, it's a, a horror story of these macho men killing each other, you know, over you know, a love affair, raping women, rum- you know, just ransacking villages, pillaging to stay for 10 years. But this was a book that was read by generation after generation after generation, and I think what some scholars have said, this actually started people thinking, hey, this is not the way to go. This is not the way to deal with conflicts. We should do it in a more mannered way. So democracy was, in one way, also a way to debate, to deal with conflict, which we have in our society, or different views or different interests, but in a way which can be done through peace peaceful means and that's what democracy is not only that's one of the reasons why we had the olympic games this is a way to build peace second issue which which democracy had to deal with was you know we the people we can actually decide our own fate we don't have to have a dictator we don't have to have a king or high priest or whatever we can do it on our own we can imagine but we have to find a way to two things first how do we collectively make these decisions and secondly how do we make sure that power is not usurped by somebody. Somebody who gets into power and then holds on to that power or creates a situation where concentrates power and then abuses power, which, of course, abuse of power was anathema to the gods. And there's one more thing. Yeah, Aristotle made sort of a survey of thousands of city-states city of democracy. And he came up, because there are lots of civil wars. Scott, you were just saying this earlier that you're reading a the book on how civil wars start. Yes. This was a big issue in in ancient times because there were lots of city-states that went into civil wars. So they were, and and Athens also had it. And so Aristotle, Plato before also were, were very worried about this issue. He was not the deepest fan of democracy, but he did say that for democracies to be able to survive, there needs to be a sense of justice and equality. If you have high inequality, where the rich have, you know, hoarding, and then you have people that are very poor. First of all, you don't have time for democracy. The young people, you want people to participate. If they really, if they have to be part of it. Secondly, there has to be a sense of justice. If you don't have that, you will get a sense of injustice, which then will be used by demagogues. Demagogues will polarize. Polarization will bring chaos, and chaos will bring tyranny. So it's not so different from what we're seeing today. We have a concentration of belief in power and global at the global level. People feel that somewhere out there there's a lot of concentration of power and wealth, and that ends up also capturing our, our democracies. So I don't think our democracies are it's not democracies to blame, it's the fact that democracies are not allowed to work as democracies because of this concentration of power, the sense of inequality that creates a sense of loneliness, of abandonment, of disempowerment, sense of injustice. And that's rife for demagogues. Now, if you add social media to that, but basically the type of social media we have, it's not just social media, but it's the type of social media which is looking out for grabbing your attention and creating any kind of sentiment which will keep your attention, which then perpetuates hate speech and whatever, and, and also the whole context of being somewhat divorced from direct discussion. I mean in ancient Athens, you had to deal with your opponent in a certain space. He was there. Could have been a she too, but they weren't allowed. But uh, social media allows you to divorce yourself a bit with this. And if you think about it then the all the new insecurities that people are feeling, whether it's climate change, whether it's the new technologies that may take their work, or whether it's the fact that they don't feel they have much prospect, the new, younger generation not feeling that they will do better than the previous generation. These are global issues, and the fact that these are global issues also makes it more difficult for local politics to deal with these issues. So all that I think is is gives a, a, a ground for for demagoguery and people saying the crises. We have problems. We're being threatened. You know, our our culture is going to be changed. You know, we're going to have these refugees. We're going to, you know, this this elite is is taking over. And then the demagogues come and say, yeah, I'm here to give you, to solve solve your problem. What happens then, of course, is basically you polarize societies and you don't give societies the chance to actually transform themselves and deal with the real crisis. And And I think this is where leadership leadership needs to, to be looked at. How do you create democratic leadership which will see these crises in a way as an opportunity to make changes? But then you have to deal with a very big issue. I've been working on the issue of new forms of participation. So, going back again to ancient Greece, they used to have citizens assemblies. Is a sortition—you choose by lottery—which basically is a representative group of your society or a certain group—and they will then deliberate to come up with ideas. Now, Ireland did this. The Irish Republic did this, and they did it on a very controversial issue, which was abortion. They created a citizens assembly through sortition, through through a lottery mechanism, choosing from their population people randomly, sat them down for quite a few months, I think it was six months, and they discussed with experts, with legal experts, medical experts, social workers and so on, psychologists. And these were representative of all walks of life of Ireland. And they came up with finally a proposal, yes, that the Constitution needed to change and abortion needed to be legalized. And they went to a referendum and they that result was confirmed. So there are new ways of strengthening or enriching democracy, reinventing, if you like, democratic institutions based on the idea that, you know, people do need to participate, do need to have a sense of empowerment, have a sense of a voice, an equal voice in our society, and not power being hoarded by certain groups, which then end up creating true injustices, daily sense of injustice.
1: It's really wonderful. Before we finish and let you go, the Ireland example is, is really wonderful about a, a way to try to make democracy work, you know, beyond simply relying on the formal political system, particularly for issues that are deeply cultural, you know, that are deeply embedded in people's identity. And and, and, and if the culture is going to evolve, then people's sense of what it means to be Irish or a citizen of this country will needs to evolve. So, And that requires specialized additional processes in addition to the formal processes of politicians working with their constituents as you've described with the citizen assembly is there another example you can give us so that we can just visualize those sort of adjuncts to democratic process beyond the formal political processes you mentioned working with women's groups you know when you would in israel and palestine what comes to mind off the top of your head in in addition to the
2: irish example when we came back from from exile, because we were in exile, because Greece was a dictatorship. I had worked in Sweden, Canada, US, uh, but also in Europe. And uh, I had learned a lot about uh, continuing education, but also civic education. There's a whole movement uh, coming out of the trade union experience in Sweden about uh, training citizens, having sort of these study circles. So I started civic education, working with civic education in Greece. And we set up circles all around Greece about what democracy was women's rights and so on, we had this huge turnout. And this I think this is something that is missing today. So civic education, I think, is very important. I I have a friend of mine, he's uh, from Oregon, Jim Ray, you may remember him, Ron. He was yeah. rummaging through his his basement because they were moving to California. And he found his father's report card, I think it was somewhere in 1936. And the report card there, I don't, can't exactly read it, I don't have it in front of me, but it said, we grade our student on two issues. The first is on their civic personality, on their personality, how much they understand, believe, know the principles of democracy, of, of civic participation, of on which these values our democracy depends. And the second issue is around the normal subjects. So they actually gave a huge emphasis on this, which we, I think we've lost in our educational systems. We look at this professional way that this is supposed to be professional training, which we're supposed to be give us a prospect. We don't even know because what jobs will be. But I think we need to bring back this in many ways at the community level, at the school level, to be able to have a conversation with our worst opponent, if you like, or the person we think is our worst opponent, but the person who is on the other side. But that means that there are certain basic values we do agree on, and we can communicate with. So I think that's where democracy is very, it's very important that you have these basic values. Otherwise, there's a rift, and then you, there's and then you cannot speak. Now that's between nations, but it's also within nations. I think that bringing people together in, in, in different contexts is, is a way. There are other solutions, other ideas so going back to the knicks where everybody had to speak together what i had started as a prime minister was these so called wiki laws i mentioned them earlier that the we asked our citizens to discuss our laws before we enacted the law before we actually voted on the law could we create sort of an agora an electronic agora where all citizens but with one voice without fake names real citizens sitting there discussing with each other on a platform. Of course, you would have millions in a big country like the United States, but you would also have the possibility with this new technology to use algorithms, but use algorithms which are transparent, which people know what they do, and which actually help in the debate, but also in finding consensual solutions. And also using that sort of electronic agora as a possibility for Experts to come in, scientists to come in, NGOs to come in, different groups to talk, citizens assemblies, as I said earlier, citizens committees. So you can have a, a different, many different forms of new forms of participation. And I have written an article on creating a fourth branch of government, which would be called the deliberative branch of government, which we will be discussing in the Council of Europe next few months as an idea. So I think there are ways we can rethink. I think we need to reimagine. Because democracy, as I said, is a work under construction. Democracy has its principles, but we shouldn't just live with the, the institutions of the principles, which can change. So let's say when Egypt had its spring, you know, its Arab spring, we pushed it just to have elections. We did not think of all the other things that should have been done to create the necessary culture, the necessary institute, the necessary Grassroots, you know, understanding what does it mean and so on to have a democracy.
3: I'm so enjoying this rich conversation. And I think we could go on. It reminds me, George, of when we had dinner together in Atlanta and thinking about what the the richness of the experience and so much that we can learn um, from you and from others. And as you're talking about rethinking or reframing democracy, It reminded me of when I was in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and when we were coming back and rebuilding, I would have dinners at my home bringing students together with the women leaders from the Ninth Ward and from the parish in general who were influencing and working to make a difference. And at those dinners, they would share the experience on the ground level, but the implications of what that meant. But the key thing they would always say to the students, and also we brought in um local leaders, is they'd say, don't do to us, work with us, right? Absolutely. We know what needs to change, but we need partners to help to make that. So partner with us, but don't do mm. to us. Mm. That has stayed with me in terms of our work, and I think that it has It just makes me think about the work that you're doing and bringing in this greater good, the collective for the greater good. So I'd love to take it just to another level around leadership. And since we have one of our leading leadership scholars, Ron, on with one of our leading global leaders thinking about this, Ron, as you look at this rich experience, what are the leadership capacities that you see that George has put into effect or action, if you will, through his work that have been effective that we need to think about? And then from both of you, I'm doing a one part one and part two question to Scott. I'm, I'm emulating Ron here. So part one about what has been emulated, but thinking in the future, What are the leadership capacities that are needed for us as a global society as we think and work towards a better future for all?
1: Well, it's a great question. You're catching me a little off guard. So I'm going to give you a spontaneous (laughs) answer, but I don't know that I'll have a lot of confidence in it. But I think what George demonstrates, first of all, is respect for people. He's not enamored. With his own brilliance, and he's not taken with his own pedigree. I mean, his grandfather and his father were both prime ministers. You know, most of the people I know who are who have his pedigree, uh, in one degree or another, are a bit overly enamored with themselves and and have almost a sort of a sense of of uh, a privileged sense of their location in a society. But there's a humility, um, not a false or over humility i mean i think george is a very confident person but he he listens to people you know and and you can't work a collective problem if you're not willing to first identify who is the who are the key parties in the ecosystem of this problem so when george talked about you know the problem of turkey and reframed it he expanded the ecosystem so now we've got europeans involved or in thinking about the financial crisis uh there were a whole variety of key stakeholders internally within the various publics in Greece, but there were also key parties within the European politics and, and financial system. And then there was also the global financial system, which is why, you know, George spent time in Washington and working, you know, with the, changing some of the policies because he, he realized that, so he, he listened. Uh, he had respect for different parties and their relevance to the problem. He also had a framework, which is, I think, perhaps one of the things that I wasn't enabled to work with him on, you know, in his days when he was a fellow at Harvard back in the mid-90s, which was a framework that would say that there are a lot of challenges that are technical for which you can look to experts to solve the problem, and where the responsibility for solving the problem largely falls in the lap of the authoritative expert. But there are a lot of problems that require the evolution in the hearts and minds of people and where you don't really have a solution until the the solution lives in the hearts and minds of people. And there are countless consulting firms and also Harvard-trained experts and people working in international development who think that they have the solutions. And here's 200 PowerPoint slides, and isn't that the solution? And they'll parachute into a foreign country and say, leveraged with money, saying, you know, here, I have the solution for you. But without really understanding the local culture and and I think one of the distinctions that I think George utilized in his work that came naturally to him, I think, from his background growing up in politics, is that a lot of these real hard problems that we face are problems that fall across boundaries and that require the engagement of the stakeholders themselves. You can't engage in a major strategic change even in a company if the people themselves aren't can't own the problem and can't then be part of the solution. Because with these challenges, which I call adaptive, because I like the metaphor from nature, you're building capacity that builds from the capacity that's there already, but also says, okay, well, what cultural DNA can we conserve? How do we build from what we've got? But then also something has to be changed and some innovation is required to take the best of our identity and culture and community into the future. And that... Uh, model, which I think is beautifully illustrated in nature, uh, requires one immediately to ask, OK, well, who is going to need to learn what? Who is going to need to work these questions of what to conserve, but what to discard and what innovation shall we try? And defining then that ecosystem of that challenge is, I think, came naturally to George. OK, well, here are the parties. And a, a good politician can think in those terms, you know, here are the folks that need to get involved. But then how does one mobilize the learning processes out into the periphery? Many times people think political leadership is simply how do you organize and make trades and bargains and leverage amongst the elites who are in the halls of government. But I think what George realized is that the elites themselves are constrained by the degree to which people out in the periphery are ready to accept and absorb and own those changes. So rather than get You know, only talking expert to expert, politician to politician, let's get out there and figure out how to mobilize the people. And he did that even when he was running for head of his party before he became prime minister. He changed the whole method by which the party leader would be voted into power instead of it being this closely held, you know, behind closed doors, you know, people, you know, um, breathing in a lot of cigarette smoke. Process. He opened it up and had uh, democratized even the process of party uh, elections. So, I think that the deep democratic ethos was strengthened by the some of the strategic the analytical framework that I I think I helped provide in in understanding that there are challenges for which you can put people to sleep and fix it for them. And I learned about those challenges training in surgery early in my career you know where the problems can be extracted from the people but there are a lot of problems and certainly in politics where the people are part of the problem and the people therefore are also the solution they are the substrate of the of the solution and and then coming up with mechanisms to mobilize their responsibility their engagement their ownership their trade offs becomes the nuts and bolts of of public leadership or political leadership so It requires a stomach for conflict, you know, a stomach for ambiguity. It requires the ability to realize that you might come up with a great plan, but the moment you start to move, you've got to deviate from the plan because plans are just today's best guess. Technical problems, you can create a critical path to a future and follow the plan. But adaptive challenges require a stomach for improvisation because leadership becomes an improvisational art because people are nonlinear systems and you make a move and they respond and you realize, okay, now I got to make a different kind of move than I had planned. And that stomach for ambiguity or creative engagement, moving with people at the rate they can stand in different ways, framing the issue as a response to the, all the listening you've done. Those are some of the capacities that leadership is required. Uh, a real willingness to get out there and engage with your people to know your people. I've got students, you know, who are deeply frustrated with their governments, like in Venezuela, and they spend all their time talking elite to elite, elitely schooled, a student to elite, you know, or exiled person with exiled person. or. But nobody goes out into the barrios or into the villages or into the neighborhoods to really understand the pains of the people and how they think and, and, and how they understand life that gave rise to a demagogue coming into power in the first place and then figuring out how to renew that trust of people who felt forsaken by the elites before Hugo Chavez came into power or Maduro. But one of my students took the courage to go out there and he spent 10 years now living in uh, poor communities. He's feeding maybe 17,000 children breakfast and meals every day, you know, through the nonprofit organizing. And in the process, he has come to know his people. He's done the field work. But a lot of people in leadership think, well, I don't really need to get out there and really get to know my people, you know, because I'm smart. I'm analytical. I'm educated. I'm brilliant. You know, just let me solve the problems as if they could be a kind of philosopher king. But even Plato discovered towards the latter part of his career that his model of philosopher king was wrong. Uh, You know, and, and he went on from writing The Republic to writing The Statesman in which his metaphor for leadership wasn't wasn't the shepherd or the doctor his metaphor for leadership was the weaver and because he he realized that the philosopher king was dependent too much on the on the brilliance of a, a particular person and a society it would always be vulnerable if it invested all of its intelligence in a single location so leadership requires then a an ability to realize that In the face of adaptive challenges, we are in over our head. My knowledge isn't going to be sufficient. I'm not smart enough to figure this all out on my own. I can't anesthetize my public, put them to sleep, and then fix it for them. And they can then just recover. But unfortunately, we see a lot of people frightened and in pain turning to demagogues for solution in the hope against hope that maybe there's somebody I can trust who's going to know the way out. And unfortunately, there's always some person overly confident in their brilliance to believe that they actually do know the way out. You know, just elect me and I know the way out. I'm, I'm your solution. And then you get the blind leading the blind over a cliff, generating disasters of various kinds. So it's not that leadership requires humility in the sense of cover your light under a bushel, but it does require a sense that we're in over our head. Now, you know, I've just lived through this week of the president of my university, only six months into her career, being taken down. Like nearly every head of state or head of government, prime ministers, presidents, CEOs, sheikhs, the ones who know they're in over their head are in much better shape because they know how to call for help. And they know how to rely on collective intelligence rather than just on the collective in, the intelligence of a few experts. And that kind of humility in the face of the daunting challenges we face that then looks to democracy as a source of collective intelligence and wisdom, not just to get people to buy in, but actually to realize that that a lot of the solutions are going to be generated through local adaptations to local environments and countless different villages and towns or school systems. The pandemic is a good example. There was no... Demagogue who could turn off the virus. Every local school, every local family, every government, you know, well, we tried, some people tried, and the death rate soared <laughs> in the United States because That's right. of the distrust. So I think George illustrates many of the capacities that one needs for leadership today in appreciation for what one brings to the party, but also an appreciation for what one doesn't know and therefore an ability to identify who are the parties that need to be engaged, and then coming up with structures and methods to engage them, to deliberate on the problem, so that you begin to develop collective capacity. And I think ultimately, political leadership is about building capacity, not dependency. And I think George had that deeply in his own cultural DNA that enabled him to do what he did. And perhaps is one of the points of contact between my conceptualizing and his practical wisdom.
0: George, are you just going to say, I want to, yeah, all that? <laughs> yes,
2: I, I agree with that. And, and Ron, thank you for, for all your help, because much of the framework that Ron has explained now was something that I learned from him during his time, both in the Kennedy School, but then also so many meetings we've had. After that, can different tilt on our simis, and on our islands, and so on. And I think one thing I wanted to stress is how you relate to your power as a person, something that each leader should should deeply think about. And there's a moral and ethical side to this. As you said, it's different to say, I've got, I'm the solution, and I'm, I'm the God, or whatever. It's different to say, I'm over my head, but I want to build capacity. And that's very different. And how you relate to that is also and also not getting stuck in being, uh, holding a certain chair of power or whatever. People f- sort of feel at some point that that's it, that they own it, or that's, you know, it's their right, subconsciously sometimes, not always consciously. And I think this is a, something one really has to deeply understand if you want to, in a more ethical way, deal with using power, wielding power. The second one, what you said, I remember the European Union basically was telling me in the, during the crisis, the financial crisis there's a technical solution, basically, you know, just cut to this. As a matter of fact, after me, we had a technocrat, both in Greece and in Italy as prime ministers, because that was sort of the idea that bankers will know the solution and they can deal with the issues. Well, it didn't work out exactly that way. It was much more of an adaptive, deeper adaptive challenge where people had to be. That's what I believed. And I think we could have done much in a much better way if we had had the, the agreement or the support from all the colleagues in the European Union to say this is a different type of a challenge. And we're not just looking for some quick technical solution, which uh, will get it out of our mind. And then it's, then it's done with. I think what Cynthia also said, Cynthia, I think it's very important what I saw going back to the, to the women in Palestine and the women in Israel. And I do hope that that peace movement again will, will rise at some point. And, and be very vocal and and peace movement where they can both they can they can be together in fighting for, for solutions. But what I felt is that as as Ron also said, they were not the elites. They were not the power holders. They were on the edge. But they sometimes they had better understanding of the problems. They they knew the solutions. They 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 were on the ground. So whether it's them, whether it's a migrant community, whether it's a, a community and poverty, whether it's, you know, if you engage them and give them the responsibility to actually come up with solutions, they will come up often with things you would never expect. They would still be so far ahead thinking, you know, so, and so, so innovative. And so, which many politicians say, you know, I'm not going to do this because it's risky, or I'm not going to do this because the polls say that this is not what the public really wants. But the polls don't really have a dynamic. they just sort of a picture. And I think if we get people involved, now that was, of course, goes again, back to, to, ancient, to ancient Athens, even if they were only men. Actually, it was your responsibility to be part of democracy. You had to be active. It was funny. You were peculiar. You were a private person, which in Greek, the word is idiot. So you're a private person. Something wrong with you. You're not really actively involved because of responsibility to society okay, that was the other side of the coin, but leaders should actually promote this, develop this, help this so that people do do participate. And that's part of the capacity building and part of what democracy is, should be. And and it's it's a way to learn. It's not theoretical, you know, democracy is this, you know, one, two, three, four, five. It is learning to discuss, learning to debate, learning to participate, learning the conflict, learning to deal with conflict in a way which is democratic. So thank you, Ron, for that.
3: (laughs) Well, thank Thank you, you George. uh, And thank you, Ron. Uh, We started this, Scott, talking about how rich this conversation was a few years ago. And it just, to me, we just picked up on that conversation and deepened it and broadened it. And what a phenomenal conversation around leadership and democracy moving forward. And the other is, I look at this sense of the ILA is at that intersection of leadership theory and practice. And oh my, if we didn't reflect that today in terms of someone who is a scholarly practitioner, George, and Ron, in terms of your scholarship and always taking that with a practical approach. I think, Scott, this really reflected um, practical wisdom, the theme of your podcast.
0: Did you hear Ron drop practical wisdom a couple of times?
3: I did. Yes. That was very (laughs) astute of him and and very. Which is, of course,
0: what
2: Cronus is, what (laughs) Cronus means. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) This
3: means, yes. So with that,
0: Scott, Uh, thank you
3: for convening us. And I'll turn it back to you to do your beautiful summary and wrap that you do.
0: Well, something I love about this conversation is that it's, it's, I I feel at times as if I'm at the foot of maybe not even to base camp yet of Mount Everest. There's, there's so much to learn and so much to take in. And this conversation will have me reflecting for some time. And I'm so appreciative, the two of you for not only taking the time, but as much time as you have to really go a little bit more in depth in this conversation. So. Thank you so much to the three of you today. Have a wonderful weekend, and thank you for the good work that you do for our world. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone. So uh, the end of part two. To help debrief, I have brought in the ILA's CEO and President, Sin Cherry to help kind of make sense of actually both episodes. So if you've not listened to the first episode, please, please, please make sure you pause and go back and listen to the first episode that really props part two up in a nice way. But let's start with part one a little bit, because Cynthia, you weren't there to reflect with me after that first episode. What stood out for you after part one? And then we'll go to part two.
3: Well, Scott, thank you. And I have found both of these conversations absolutely fascinating In part one, Ron Heifetz and George Papadreou have this conversation about democracy, illuminated by the leadership experiences that George had as Ministry of Foreign Affairs and as the Prime Minister of Greece. And it just sets it up nicely for part two, which we just heard, which is this deeper conversation. They really delved into democracy and leadership
0: yes and you know there were a couple phrases that really stood out for me especially in part two basic values we agree upon (laughs) and and a stomach for conflict and at at one point i think ron said you know do you have a stomach for improvisation because people are non-linear systems and we don't know how people are going to behave So those are some things that kind of resonated for me. I I loved that segment where he goes into kind of diagnostic mode, right? But what stood out for you in the second conversation? What else?
3: Well, I really appreciate it when um, we asked Ron to talk about democracy in relation to leadership capacities. And his first statement was, oh, I didn't prepare. And I'm going, (laughs) oh, my for no preparation. This was just, it was so authentic and so real. Yes. And there were some beautiful pieces that he talked about around, you know, the, with the problems that exist today and the complexity of our world and the importance of, as you mentioned, the stomach to deal with it and the uncertainty. I think it's a brilliant conversation and a question we should each address ourselves around the sense of when Ron talks about the difference between authority and leadership and this conversation around being an active citizen of your democracy means you do need to think about your own relationships and how you relate to the power of others and the power of yourself. So to me, this is a brilliant conversation on the issues that we are facing about leadership in this complex world of ours.
0: Yes. And I think that's where we will leave listeners today. Not necessarily, uh, well, there's all kinds of practical wisdom nuggets in those two episodes, but we're not going to tie it up in a bow. We're going to tie it up with a question. And I love that. Thank you so much, Cynthia.
3: Thank you, Scott.
0: Be well, everyone. As always, thank you for listening. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro.
3: You've been listening
1: to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.